Hi everyone, quick note before we get into the episode proper. This will be our last episode for 2018. We're gonna take a few weeks off and then we'll be back in 2019 with new episodes. But I wanna wish everyone a very happy holidays and a thank you to everyone for listening with us over 2018 and inviting me on as your new host and uh, yeah, all the fun things that we've gotten to do together. So looking forward to 2019 and see you next year. Yeah, Data and Scala and Kafka and all that stuff. I'm looking forward to the literary discussion on metamorphosis. I awoke and I found that I had become an enormous cockroach. It's a weird, weird book. Hey, thank you for the reference. But why, though? You you said you were going to talk about Kafka. See ya! (laughs) It's the game. you got to unwrap Tom's riddles. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm your host, Chris Toomey, and I'm joined today by Joe Ferris, CTO and developer here at ThoughtBot. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We tend to talk a lot, which is one of the nice features of my job here. And one of the <laughs> themes that I'd say you have been leading us in the direction of is all things data. That's a, a direction that we've been exploring that you seem particularly interested in. So I would love to chat a little bit about that, your thoughts on it, where you see the, uh, the industry heading. Uh, what's going on, Joe? Yeah, data is a big field. You may have heard of big data. There's also smaller datas, datums Mm. out there. And what I found more and more is that in our everyday work as uh, web developers and mobile developers and everything in between, we are more and more encountering applications that have a significant concern with data. And so back in the day, a lot of people were mostly just using their own data. And that would mostly be entered by users on forms or maybe through a mobile app, things like that. But new and interesting ideas have a tendency to involve combinations of your data and people's personal data that you pull in, and then data from other services. And so the complexities that arrive from, I don't know, multiplexing all that data, collating that data, Mm. making that data nice are different than the complexities we had back in the day just managing the data from a form in a Rails application. And so we still have all the same challenges we've always had in terms of modeling business logic, making sure that we present a sane UI to the UI. But now we also have this added complexity of interacting with a lot of APIs. Like We have to start talking about things like consistency guarantees in ways we didn't really have to worry about when it was only our database. And so I've been learning about that world and trying to teach our developers about it and just seeing what's out there. It does feel like we're we're starting to get a little groundswell of interest within um, the developers here at ThoughtBot. It does feel a little bit like perhaps we figured out how to do the the traditional case of we need to take some data, you know, show it back to the user, that whole thing. And so now that part, ideally, we can do very quickly. And the interesting work is in that data layer. What in your mind, does the structure of a system like that start to look like? What are some of the technologies at play? I'm guessing we're not using Rails for the majority of the heavy lifting in these cases. Yeah, there are a number of good tools out there. And it's tricky because I've found that the best tools for just shifting data around and interacting with APIs and doing large aggregations and stream processing are in the JVM ecosystem. I'm particularly smitten with Scala and the tools that go along with that. If you're more in the data science and machine learning camp, the best-in-class kind of tools there tend to be more in the Python ecosystem. And then, of course, we have our traditional 
technology stack using Rails that's doing more of the user interaction and the web-focused things. And so for those kind of data-heavy projects, effectively we're forced to either, for one aspect of the project, use something that's not best-in-class, so doing like data processing on Rails or presenting form validations in Scala, or we have to go polyglot, which is a challenge that we haven't undertaken on most of our projects historically. And so I think my very long answer to your question is that there are sort of two branches we've been exploring. And one is the polyglot avenue, where we still do what we've always done. But as we start to get into either machine learning or data-heavy things, we try to start breaking out services, which is something we've typically avoided. Or we're trying to shore up some of those weaknesses in the ecosystems we might work with. And so, for example, improving the form validation options available on Scala, which would mean that for a simpler web application with heavy data needs, it would be easier to just use Scala. It does start to push on some of the traditional models that we've held very dear. Like I had George Brocklehurst on recently, and we were talking about machine learning, and he recently built a machine learning recommendation algorithm for our blog. But by virtue of the, the technology strengths that you were talking about, he reached for Python in order to do that. So he ended up extracting a service out that would analyze all of the blog posts. And anytime there's an update to the whole system, it would make a new batch of recommendations. But it ended up being the separate service and there was bidirectional communication between them. And it becomes a very interesting situation as we start to push on those edges and inherently end up with more complex systems. And I think that's sort of the direction this work is is going to keep taking us. Although it, it does sort of fit within my mindset around how services can be modeled, like the idea of having a singular canonical source of truth for data and then having different functional pieces that you can extract out. And ideally, a lot of these data pipeline things can be more functional. There's stream-based processing and things like that. There's also Kafka that we've been talking about, which we can probably dig into both of those because I think they're interesting ideas. But it is... It is the first time where I'm really feeling a pressure to like, I think there are reasonable, good reasons even early on in projects to start thinking about teasing it apart into different pieces. Streams in Kafka are particularly interesting to me right now. There's sort of a movement going on, rethinking data in terms of streams. It's been going on for a while, but it's newish to me. <laughs> and the gist of it is that all static state. So what you think of normally as your data and your database, like who are your users, what are their orders, who are they friends with, whatever. That's actually a cache. Mm -hmm. And that the actual source of truth is the event log. And so if you assume there's a stream of events coming into your application somehow, like people clicking on buttons, signing up through forms, you can translate those into semantic events, like a user has signed up, a user has changed their name. And then whatever you resolve those events into in your database is actually a cache of the event stream. And I think if you take a little bit to let that settle in, like at first you're like, eh, that's stupid and pedantic. But if you kind of let it percolate and you think about it as you're working with your static state cache throughout your job, it actually starts to explain a lot of the difficulties we have in working with data and sharing data. And just as one example, in a rich front-end application using a mountain of JavaScript and then an API using something like Rails, getting the data to agree in your webby UI and your database is really difficult. Not many people do it well. I still regularly use applications from really big companies that I respect where the little counter in the corner of the application <laughs> saying how many notifications you have does not match the number of notifications you see in the list. It's funny that that's the canonical example that Facebook gave when they introduced the Flux architecture, which was their answer to state modeling within the world of React, which that's pretty recent. 
Like we're still fighting this battle. It is still an uphill thing. And it is exactly that uh, particular example. Mm -hmm. And I think actually that model is a good example of the power of events because that whole reducer concept is the idea of folding over state in Mm -hmm. an event stream. Yep. And if you preserve the event stream, it means that you can do that whenever you want. Yep. It's interesting to me that Flux and Redux and those architectures over the past, I want to say it's like three, maybe even a few more years, they had this wild swell in popularity. And suddenly there's a lot of like, well, maybe we don't need Redux. And Redux seemed to be the one that folks focused on in the world of React applications and heavy client-side stuff. But now there's this like, oh, man, it's so much boilerplate and so much work and I see everyone focusing on what I think are the wrong aspects on the reducers and the selectors and all these other things, but very few people are talking about what I would call the action stream in a Redux application, but it's essentially the event log. Like I think that's the thing that matters, and I'm so intrigued by it, and it's why I liked Redux when it was popular, but it is that same idea of an event log is a deeply powerful idea because if you just record everything you do, then at any time in the future when you change your mind about how you want to present that, you still have all of the raw data. And you can recompute any version of the world from that raw data. Mm -hmm. And that becomes incredibly... And you can also analyze it. You can do analytics off of it. You can do all of these interesting things if you've modeled that event stream. Right. And it's super powerful. There's definitely a lot of hand-waving that happens. Like that replay the world concept sounds super nice. And there are times when you might actually do it for some subset of the world. But as you start to explore that space, you you hit some interesting road bumps. Like, for example, your events probably won't follow the same schema for the history of your application. And so if you add a field to your user sign-up form, it means the event a user has signed up is different now than it was two mm-hmm. years ago. So do you make your code work with all versions of all events ever? Do you write something that migrates those events forward when possible? What about when it's not possible and a field just isn't there? What about when the events don't make sense anymore? This is a true naive beginner's question, but would you not model that schema change into your event log? I think the short answer is no. If I have to give a yes or no answer, the answer is no. Right. My guess would be no, because I haven't heard of that. But at the same time, like, I don't know, everything that happened to your system, put it in the log. Yeah. Well, you know, technically you have an event log of what's happening to your system itself in Git, but generally you don't operate on that at runtime. I mean, we run migrations. That's that's true, yeah. And so, I mean, that would be what you have to do. Like, if you have a JSON event that was recorded at some point saying a user signed up and, like, you rename a field, you could have something that goes through the log and writes it to a new topic with the updated schema. And for some situations, you would do that. Mm-hmm. And that's not super hard. But for some situations, it's harder. I'm not dismissing the power of the replay concept. It's just that it's not so simple as it seems. Right. And I think... In all event-based processing, you run into these same things. Like if you start looking into event streaming systems like Flink or Spark or any of the other popular ones, you'll see a lot of stuff in there about like time skew and figuring out event time versus processing time, which are challenges you don't really think about mm-hmm. until you get into event processing. And it turns out that it's more complex than it seems. Sure. But I think the interesting revelation to me was that we're already dealing with these complexities. We just don't have good ways to talk about them. And so when you have a system like Postgres, which is a super good database, and you are sharing that data between two different systems, part of the reason that it's so complex is that you're sharing the cache and that a lot of the time you end up with an old cache or like the wrong part of the cache. You Mm -hmm. have like conflicts that we don't really talk about because you're not sending the raw data, which is the events. You're sending the cache data. Are you referring to having like a primary and a read replica or something like that in a Postgres system? No, I'm talking about uh, not sending between two Postgres systems, but going back to the example we had earlier, like a front end and a back end. Uh, Like if you're sending data back and forth between your React app and your Rails app, 
that is delivering cached data. Right. So your database is a primary cache, and then your front end is going to have some in-memory cache that is a secondary, and then you may get out of sync between the two of those, and right. that, that makes sense. My understanding is that database replication actually does work via event log systems. There's the write-ahead log for Postgres, and that's actually how it just sends that whole log across over to any follower databases, and they'll just read through that event log as well, and then everybody stays in sync via that. Right, which is interesting because like, on one level, of course, that's how they do that. But also, if they do that... I was surprised then... when I heard it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also, it's, it's almost proof that the data that we actually keep in Postgres is the cache. Because when yep. one Postgres talks to another, that's not the language it uses. It uses events. Mm-hmm. There's um, a wonderful conference talk that sort of opened my eyes to some of, this, some of these concepts, which is turning the database inside out which I think is about Apache Samza, one of the other many projects in the Apache world, which I'm not actually terribly familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it every is, word in English and most other Western languages has an can, Apache project. Yeah, there's an Apache project. <laughs> also all animals. Mm, indeed. Oh, yeah, big data or Pokemon. We got a link to that in the, mm-hmm. <laughs> the associated things. But that talk was fantastic for describing and sort of thinking through what if we took this to the logical extreme, this idea of the event log and getting rid of all intermediate caches and making every representation just a projection of that event log. So that was a very interesting one. The other one that I'm vaguely interested in, although I've not worked with it at all, is Datomic, which I think I'm saying that right. I don't know. I've never actually said it out loud. I don't know enough to correct you. (laughs) But that, my understanding is, it's a database that implements both a traditional referential access model, but also has an event log inherent to it. And you can ask questions like, what was the user's name throughout time? Also, what is the user's current name? And so it seems to give you the best of both worlds. But again, I'm not, have you worked with it at all? I haven't, no. I would say Kafka is definitely the premier database in that space of like event-driven data. With that recognition of events being primary, they've started to implement interesting features taking advantage of log compaction to speed up event sourcing Hmm. and then taking that to the next step of making their streaming and table system based on Kafka logs. And so your event stream is the only source of data, but then you can operate on it like a table. Interesting. Can we back up very briefly and give the like high level Kafka? I think we've said the name now a few times, but Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what what exactly is a Kafka? It's a book about philosophy. Uh, Also, it's a a database which uh, is described as a distributed commit log. But the basic premise is that you store blocks on a topic that is split up into partitions. Is it a blockchain? uh, It's not a blockchain. (laughs) Maybe block is a bad word to use. When you said it, my eyes lit up. But it's like uh, blobs of data, like Mm. streams of bytes. And so, for example, a really common thing to put on there would be events. And so you can write your events to a Kafka topic, which will be split up into partitions based on how you configure it. Then you have consumers that read from them. And it's kind of hard to briefly explain why it's important, but Kafka, instead of being a system with a queue like AMQP or the way a lot of people use Redis for their job systems, is it's, it has offsets within partitions that it can store or you can store. And so, for example, as a stream processor, you can be reading from a partition, and every time you get a message, you also know the offset for your message. And then when you commit the data you've computed from that stream to your database, you also commit the offset that you read up until. So rather than it being a destructive operation to actually pull from a queue like you would in AMQP, it is an immutable log of things that happen, and you just keep track of where you are in that log. And as you process forward, you just increment which blob, let's say, that you're talking about, as opposed to having that system actually discard that data. 
Right. Is that correct? And so it, it's like similar. If you ever look at the different diagrams of how people use AMQP, using the primitives they have, like route binding and exchanges and queues, you can build a lot of different patterns like fan out or uh, round robin or whatever. Uh, and the same is true with Kafka, that you can build a lot of those same plans using the Kafka primitives. But the interesting upshot is that because you can both commit a offset and the result of the offset, you can simulate exactly once semantics, which is very, very difficult to do. I thought that was impossible. I thought that was one of those like classic things you can't do. Yeah, I think you could argue about whether or not it's possible, which is why I say simulate. Okay. But so, for example, if you are getting a stream of integers, adding them up and committing them to a Postgres database. In AMQP, as you pull the messages off that have the integers, uh, there are a lot of things that can go on wrong, like somebody unplugging one of the three machines involved before you get to commit it, but they've already been pulled from the AMQP queue. And so if you say, like, I've acknowledged this message, I'm good with it, but then you don't get to commit it, that means you've lost that data. And so you have to decide whether or not you want to commit the data first and then acknowledge, which gives you at least once, or you are going to acknowledge it first and then commit it, which gives you at most once guarantees. So basically, either you lose data or you might double count data. With Kafka, if you commit the offset at the same time you commit the data, it means that the results of you looking at the messages will be committed the same time as you acknowledging that you have read the messages. And so if somebody unplugs one of those machines, you'll start over again from the same offset. So technically, you're looking at the message a second time, but you will never double count it. And so as long as the actual side effect that you're producing is written to the database at the same time as your offset, you're simulating exactly once guarantees by creating an idempotent situation. So you have to transactionally write both of those records at the same time in your database. Right, That's if you're writing way. outside of Kafka. And Kafka has its own transactions that let you do that between Kafka topics. So is there an idea that you would have a Kafka topic that would be a reduction of... I don't know what the word is, data duplication in that sense, or is everything lazily evaluated? So say you had a history, like a counter of people coming into a room and then leaving a room, and you wanted to know at any given point the count of people in the room. Would you actually produce and, and cache that data essentially in the system, or would you do that as a, a function over the data? I don't know if that's a logical question, but... I think it would depend on the use case. Is that sort of a performance optimization question rather than a, a fundamental data usage within Kafka question? Yeah, I think it's more of a, like, what are you doing kind of question. That sounded judgmental when you said <laughs> it. What, what are you yeah, doing? What are you doing with your... Why are we in this room? So, for example, like, in the actual Kafka topic system itself, like the basic commit log, there's nothing that I know of for doing that kind of caching. Mm -hmm. Kafka also has its own streaming library or uh, ecosystem you can use with it, which will let you do some of those aggregations mm -hmm. and then store them somewhere. I could think of situations where you might want to, for example, aggregate counts of people visiting and then once an hour produce a value to another queue. Mm -hmm. But that would, it would really depend on what you're doing. Like There are a lot of different patterns you could follow depending on the use case. I'm personally struggling in that I'm deeply intrigued by the fundamental idea of Kafka and of uh, event sourcing as a fundamental idea of the event log, but I, I don't yet have the visceral understanding of like, oh, when I have this type of problem on my hand, it is a perfect match. I don't know if that's something that you can provide examples for, but like, what sort of applications or workflows lend well to this? I think eventually you can break down a lot of workflows where you're sharing data between systems mm -hmm. into being event-based. But I think the easiest place to start is in an application where you already think of things as event-driven. 
so one of the first applications I built for fun was something that processed Slack messages. And everything that happens in Slack is effectually an event. And so building that into an event streaming system was very natural. But if you, if you think about systems that have to share data like financial systems, like if you have to log transactions and things like that, you can send things like what is a balance or like what are the orders that have been placed, or you can send events as they go. And then you can be sure that they don't get out of date because all event data is immutable, right? Like you don't ever sign up for a site and then two days later that event becomes different somehow. Like once you've signed up, that's it. That's, mm -hmm. That was the event. And so the fact that all of that data is immutable means that anytime you share it with another system means you don't have a cache problem. If you share mutable data, then you have to worry about whether or not your cache is up to date. But events are immutable, so all event sharing you don't have to worry about caching. All you have to worry about is reprocessing. Yeah, but caching is an easy problem. <laughs> yeah, as long as we can think of a new name for it. Indeed. Now, this all sounds like the blockchain. So, I mean, we got that going for us too, which is nice. Yeah, you're going to have to talk to somebody else about blockchain. All I know is uh, if you're in the market, you want to sell. I've had some folks on recently to talk about the blockchain. I remain unconvinced, but uh, I don't know. Maybe the third time I talk about it, it'll, uh, it'll clarify some things. Well, today is a, an auspicious day in the office. We're doing our annual holiday get-together and hackathon called Ralphapalooza. And so I think, are we working with any of these technologies today? Did you end up on a project with any of these? I did, yes. Uh, we're using one of your favorite technologies, which is GraphQL. I do like it. And we're writing a service that will pull data from various GraphQL APIs and push them to another API, which actually is a really good summary of computer programming. <laughs> What's the actual uh, use for this data? Search. Search. Gotcha. So this is the aggregated search system that we're doing? Yes. We have a lot of repositories and systems and Trello boards and just a lot of data, I guess. Uh, and people need to search for it. And they need to do things like find how to use one of our accounts or if they need to know what the process is for getting an expense reimbursed, people need to find answers to that. And we document it as much as we can and that documentation needs to be searched. Interesting. So now each of these systems, the GitHub repositories, the Trello boards, et cetera, are they going to be publishing events into a Kafka queue? Kafka no, log? actually, Kafka probably isn't going to come into play. I think everybody on the team agrees that we would love to play with Kafka, but that this is not the opportunity. Okay. We're just going to be using Scala and some of the streaming libraries in Scala to pull the data and push it in a streaming asynchronous fashion. Gotcha. Well, that still sounds fun and data and streaming and all of those good things. Yes, there will not be a UI, so, you know. So that's a plus? <laughs> it means I don't have to write JavaScript. does mean that. But yeah, we should we should keep searching for that uh, Dare to be Kafka situation. Mm -hmm. I still mm -hmm. want to build my uh, streaming Twitter analysis bot, does sentiment analysis, and only shows me the nice part of Twitter. You could use Kafka for that. And machine learning, because I'd have to figure out sentiment analysis and all that. Mm-hmm. It would be a complicated one, but I'm interested then to dig in a little bit to Scala stuff. You've mentioned that you are smitten with Scala. Uh, I think you're probably one of the bigger proponents in the office of Scala as a language. So I'm intrigued. What draws you to it? What keeps you in that language and that ecosystem? Well, I've always been a fan of types. Many of you who know me know me as a Ruby developer. Joe Ferris, web developer primarily in Ruby. Sure, yes. And for the same reasons that I was so obsessed with tests when I was doing a lot of Ruby. I am obsessed with types now that I'm doing a lot of Scala. I feel like it's similar to doing TDD, but more tightly integrated with the language. And I've found that the more you can tell the computer about what you're doing, mm -hmm. the better it can actually help you write that program. Like I think 
being convinced that you can't write what you're trying to write in tests is effectually being convinced that what you're building is so complex that you can't describe it to a computer, but you think the computer should be able to run it. <laughs> and it's also taking the additional step of saying, like, I can picture this problem better than a computer can, which when it comes to like assembling dependencies and making sure that you've dotted the I's and crossing the T's is probably not correct. And as developers, most of the code rewrite doesn't work the first time. And so once we start transitioning to programs that the computer can understand, it can tell us they're not going to work before we run them, mm -hmm. which I've found to be a very pleasant experience. Like after working in Scala with types for a, a few years now, whenever I do write Ruby code and I see a 500 page and it crashes, I'm always like, why did you let me run that? Yeah. Like if, if it wasn't going to work, why would you run it? I find myself really struggling with the dichotomy of, I, I do still love Ruby. It's a beautiful language, um, which is a complicated and probably loaded term, but it is the best one that I can come up with. I like the structure and the semantics of classes that I write and things like that. But at the same time, when I look at the amount of automated feedback that I can get from any system looking at my Ruby code, like RuboCop is just going to look at the file and be like, I don't know if we're being honest, any of these could be methods. Good luck, buddy. Have fun. And just send me out into battle. And even comparing that to like ESLint in the JavaScript world, that system can know so much more about the code that I'm writing. And that's without even bringing a type system in. And then as you go the next step to a, a good, strong type system, it just changes the game. And the the experience then of getting that sort of automated feedback, but then also you often use the phrase of having a conversation with the type system or mm -hmm. having a conversation with the compiler. And I really like that as a way to think about the system of what additional constraints that are in my head can I then put into the type system? Can I add as annotations such that the computer can then do its good computer job and verify that throughout the entire dependency graph of my program and give me wonderful feedback, hopefully wonderful feedback. Sometimes the error messages get a little opaque, but yeah, nothing's perfect. Yeah, my experiences are very similar. That, that experience of type-driven development and having a friendly compiler by your side to help you along is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I think for me, uh, there are a lot of things that affect developer experience and, you know, to some degree, productivity. But a big one has always been the feedback cycle and the mm -hmm. latency built into it. Like when I first started writing web applications, I was editing code. I think it was in Perl, a server directly. And so, so I SSH in and using BI on that server. Yeah, it may have been FTP I was using at the time. Okay. And whatever it was, it was editing something in an editor then uploading it to a server, and then going to a web browser, getting it to restart the server because I did not have fast CGI working, mm -hmm. and then reloading the page. And so every time I wrote something, I would have to wait maybe four minutes to see whether or not it did anything at all. And that was atrocious. And <laughs> things got better, like uh, local setups got easier to use, editors got better, and so like syntax highlighting got better at telling you if it was not even valid syntax. Although sometimes it's wrong, and man, that's the worst red herring when the syntax highlighting is like, I don't think this is a construct in your language, and you're like, no, 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 we added that one. <laughs> Come on, syntax highlighting. Yeah, that that can definitely be disappointing. But I, you know, I think it's gotten better and better to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. But I think. In a dynamic language, there is just a bottleneck where the mm. best you can hope for is that either a test fails or when you go to use it, it breaks. And for a complicated scenario or particularly something that involves a lot of data processing, that latency can be really frustrating. And so if you're running long aggregations in some kind of a data pipeline, 
you don't want to run them every time to find out that one field you're joining to another query actually doesn't exist in the result set. Oh, that's an interesting point. Like I'm traditionally in the mindset of web application. So at worst, it's I have to navigate a few pages and then try and load that third page. And that's the one that'll break. But what you're describing are much longer lived processes that are chomping through a bunch of data and we may not fail until two hours into the processing. So yeah, that, that feedback cycle becomes all the more important if you can push that error up to compile time. Right, like two hours certainly is awful, but realistically, my bar is like, it should be way, way sub-minute. Yeah. Like if I'm writing something stupid, I should know about it right away. I don't yeah. want to, you know, I don't want to run anything. I don't want to switch away from my editor before mm -hmm. I find out that what I've written could not possibly work. I found there's an interesting breakpoint for me where it's somewhere in the like probably less than half a second. If I can get feedback in that amount of time, that's fantastic. And I want that in my editor. I want that incrementally as I'm editing the file. But if there's enough latency in that compilation loop, like RuboCop is an example actually where unfortunately it's a little bit slower and I find the latency of its feedback in editor to be more distracting than useful. Uh, and it starts to go in a weird direction for me. It's similar to, I've noticed a lot of people will have all of their tests running in a watch mode, but if the tests are not fast enough, then that feedback is just sort of one to two steps behind the work that I'm actually doing. And so I vastly prefer running my test manually each time I get to that point because I found that the feedback is not fast enough with that automated thing. So it becomes this interesting line of if it's fast enough, then I want it instantly. If it's not, then I want it manually and, and on demand. Uh, but that also speaks more to my weird quirks of workflow, which... I think that's universal. I think the thresholds probably uh, I'm vary. Regular? I'm a normal person, John. <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, don't put words in my mouth. All right, all right, yeah. But I think that there are different thresholds that people have. Like, people actually done research on this, and I don't any, know any of the numbers, so I'm not going to quote them. Mm -hmm. But there are thresholds you can reach where people just won't run the tests. Mm -hmm. And then there are thresholds you can reach where they'll actually run all of the tests every time they commit a change. Yeah. And there are thresholds that can be so low that they will run all of the tests anytime they make a change. Mm -hmm. And if you start a new project when the tests are super fast, you'll find yourself doing that, where like you run all the tests really often because it feels good. Yes. And then as they get slower, you run them less often because it I feels I definitely worse. had that experience. And so I think tightening that loop, getting the latency down as low as possible, is really the future of good software development. Mm -hmm. And so I think right now the technology is in a place like type systems as we understand them and the tooling around them is in a place where you can be comparable in two languages for a lot of places where you're you know, not running really long pipelines. Mm -hmm. But realistically, there is no future innovation in a system where the computer can't understand what you're doing. And so eventually, as type systems get better and as the tooling around type-based languages get better, there will be possibilities that open up for those languages that just can't ever open up for yep. a language that the computer can't understand until you run it. It's interesting to me looking at the trends uh, across various languages. Like Python at this point, I think it's in 3.6, they have a type annotation thing that's built into the standard library. It's mostly experimental at this point, but it is like Python now has types. And Ruby has a project called Sorbet from Stripe, which is an incremental compiler slash type annotation library on top of Ruby, something like that. But I know that Matt's and the rest of the core team are also talking about adding some static type hinting into Ruby 3.0 although with lots of caveats and not wanting to hurt the developer experience and things. So it'll be interesting to see the shape that one takes. There's that on those two languages. And then JavaScript has, I don't know, like 10 different strongly typed compiled to JavaScript situations, Elm and PureScript and TypeScript and Flow and Scala.js and uh, so many different options. Clojure is the only language that I can think of that I don't know of any strong type, but I probably just haven't heard of it. I know even Elixir has Dialyzer, I want to say, for types. And mm -hmm. everybody wants types these days. 
Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is, I think it's just a win in the end. Like, it's hard to argue at some point that it would be better if you couldn't find this information out before you run your program. I mean, my understanding, and I'll be honest, I'm speaking of this as someone who's never really used the system in anger, but Java years ago, it was more of an annoyance. I was describing TypeScript to someone recently. They were like, yeah, but I really don't want to have to, like, push the compile button and walk over and get a coffee and come back and see some annoying error message. And I was like, oh, no, no, it's it's not like that anymore. That's not the game that we're playing. And I can imagine if that were the workflow, that that would be painful. But the incremental background process, compilation watching, all of that stuff has gotten good enough that I think it it changes that. But my understanding is the experience, particularly with Java, years ago was somewhat unpleasant. And also the type system there was less capable, less useful. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely trade-offs in terms of expressiveness in types and in terms of like how you have to interact with the system. And so things like type derivation and there's a word I, I can't think of right now, but not needing to declare all of the types explicitly is nice. Type inference? Yes, inference mm. is the word I want. Yep. And Java was not big on that. Also, in early versions of Java, before they had generics, there was just a really big class of problems that couldn't be expressed in the types. And so a lot of things got sugarcoated into objects, which is not helpful. Right. And so you'd have to say like, oh, I have an array. Uh, it's got a bunch of objects in it. And I will tell you this one is a user. Mm-hmm. And anytime you have to tell the computer something that it can't prove, you're not actually taking advantage of the type system. So I think you reach a point where you have the ceremony of declaring types without the advantage of the computer being able to tell you more things. Mm-hmm. And the more expressive and easy those types get to work with, the more the advantage is. Right. It, it does feel like right now is a wonderful time to get into strongly typed languages. There's a lot of foundational work that's been done across so many languages and then brought together. And also, like my recent experience has been introducing TypeScript into a few different applications. And it is definitely not the strongest type system in the world, but it does actually have a, a good number of very powerful features. And I think the standout element to me is the effort that they put into developer tooling and the experience of using TypeScript. So VS Code is the editor that sort of grew up alongside it, and the integration between the two of them is absolutely fantastic. Hands down, one of the best experiences I've seen between a language and an editor. Thankfully, they're doing it in the right way, and they're paying it back into the system. So ideally, like Scala also has a fantastic experience in VS Code, is my understanding. But in theory, Vim should also get these magic powers soon. I don't know. I've tried out every language client for Vim, and they still all are rough. But I would say for VS Code, the Scala experience is still evolving. Mm-hmm. But I think that plays into the the previous point of that there is a future yep. for languages like Scala and things like TypeScript. And editors like Vim. Right, where the editor can do a lot for you. Right. Whereas in Ruby, without significant changes to how everything works, it's just not realistic when you have a reference to something called user that it can tell you what is and isn't going to happen on that user. Like, for example, telling you whether or not there will be a user at all. It's, it's very likely that it'll be nil. Sure will. And proving whether or not it is at compile time would require uh, retooling of the language and every library used in Ruby. All feels true. It's a complicated feeling because, again, I still love Ruby. And I still think, given a certain class of problems, Ruby and Rails are a great toolkit to use there. But it's interesting to see as the problems evolve and the world changes from under us. What does that look like? But, yeah, I still reach for Rails. So Yeah. Well, and I think, uh, personally, it was easy for me as I got invested in these data-centric problems to swerve into an ecosystem like Scala because it has that sort of, in my opinion, future-oriented approach to typing. But also being on the JVM and growing up in the ecosystem it did, it has a lot of systems that are best in class 
for data processing, like Spark. If you are working with interesting or large or complex data, there's an easy argument to make that Ruby would not necessarily be the best language. Mm -hmm. And once you've already decided that Ruby is not necessarily the best language, having a system that provides uh, strong types and a functional flair is appealing to me. Strong types and a functional flair. I think you just uh, named our episode, Joe. (laughs) Nice work. (laughs) I wish the answers were easy, but they are not. But my time with Scala has been excellent. I've really enjoyed working with it. Whereas in contrast, we've also spent a good amount of time playing around with Haskell. And I found that a little bit more difficult to get into, a little bit less familiar and approachable. But I found Scala to have a lot of the same sort of benefits and yet be more approachable. So it's interesting to contrast those experiences again than against Ruby or other JavaScript and things like that. Each has its own flair, as it were. One last thing that sort of a conversation that you and I have had a few times along coffee walks, but um, Scala is in an interesting place right now where it's about to, I think over the next two years probably, transition to the next major version. So right now it's 2. something, 2.18 or? 12. 2.12. Grow it up a little bit. But it's somewhere in that space, and they're looking at what will be version 3.0 of the language. And somewhat similar to Python from way many years back, the transition will be large. They're planning a lot of things. They're introducing and or changing a lot of functionality. And it's interesting to look at that process, especially having seen the history of the transition from Python 2 to Python 3. That's the like main comparison point that I have. And I know that that one was a bit rockier and still sees some projects lagging behind. So what do you think about that? Like, are you confident that it's all going to go well? Or I'm pretty confident. I think there are three things that are interesting. One is that the scope of the change from Scala 2 to Scala 3, I think, is not as large as the scope of the Python 2.3 change mm-hmm. that initially happened. Another is that the like non-3 versions of Scala will be slowly upgrading the standard library changes that are possible to change in Scala 2 before Scala 3, so they won't be changing both at once. So they'll be backporting things into the standard library of Scala 2? Right. And so like for one example, uh, one thing that people have been working on a lot is the Scala Collections library. And they decided to do that first, release it as part of Scala 2.13 with no new like type features that would be in Scala 3. And then people can switch to the new collections before they also have to switch to Scala 3. And so as much as possible, they're putting in new standard library features in Scala 2 before pushing people to three and you know part of that comes from i think looking at the experience of python like if you hear people who work on scala talk about scala 3 they do reference the python Hmm. 3 fiasco and how they're trying to avoid it that's good but i think the last thing that really helps is that scala is a typed language and so there are interesting tools like scala fix Mm -hmm. which can look at a program and know exactly what it's using and if it's using a deprecated feature in most cases, it can rewrite it to use the non-deprecated version. And so as much as possible for things that will not be supported in Scala 3, they're writing Scala fix implementations that will rewrite the code for you. And there will certainly be some things where that's not possible, and there will be some things where even if it does work, the code you get is probably not the code you want. But the fact that that's at all possible is really interesting to me. Whereas like even in Ruby, which I don't think has seen significant breaking changes for the most part. Mm-hmm. Like there have been new backwards and compatible features, but I can't remember having upgraded Ruby and needing to rewrite many things. The frozen string literal comment. Put that at the top of every file. Yeah. 
even making some of those kind of rote changes, yeah. like changing the hash syntax, yeah, that's, that's or easy. like make, yeah. you know, like that, it's harder than it should be. Yeah, because you have to do it with text replace tools, mm -hmm. and the syntax is rich enough, and things are complex enough that things can be different than they seem. Mm -hmm. Like you might think you're using symbol to proc on something, but somebody could have overwritten that operator in that context, or you know, like the thing you think is a block might actually be a method that has call on it. And so, like, rewriting things statically that way for an upgrade is really hard in Ruby. But in Scala, like, if you have something that looks like it's using procedure syntax, you know for sure how you can rewrite it. Mm -hmm. That does give hope. And most of the things that I've seen talked about in that transition seem great, especially one of the focuses is on developer tooling and adding that similar language server support and auto formatting and errors and things in your editor. All of that is also coming along for the experience. So I think folks have seen the work that's going on with VS Code and with TypeScript and said, oh, okay, this seems like a thing. This seems like a win overall and worth investing some effort in. And so it's great to see that as well, because I don't know, I'm personally someone who cares a lot about that whole developer experience and spend some time tweaking my Vim config, turns out. <laughs> cool. With that, I think we can probably wrap things up. Joe, thank you so much for coming on and sharing a peek into the world of data. Always a pleasure. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of our others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed on Twitter or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next Bike Shed. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.